Judges 2. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. We're moving over to the other page, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. <clears throat> Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the, commands of the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk, away, to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the late 90s, there was a, a television show, or I think it was more of a movie, called When Animals Attack. You may recall, I enjoyed watching these. They were as fun as it sounds. There were about three or four of them made um, in an attempt to, to track down a, a segment that I recall watching. Um, I kind of went down a, a black hole this week as I'm sermon prepping. Wednesday found me on YouTube uh, very deep in uh, videos of when animals attack. And I'm not even sure if this is the one that I actually recall from the, the television movie, When Animals Attack, but I did find one that will serve my purpose this morning. But it is uh, a story of a female model 
posing with a, a lion, a, a female modeling, right? She, she's a martial arts instructor, um, and she specializes in some sort of Indian martial arts that patterns the movements onto the movements of animals, so hence the lion. But the, the martial arts teacher, she's modeling with this lion, she's posing next to him, touching him, like laying on him, and you can guess what happens. Eventually, she actually does a couple of her moves, and the lion spears her, open field tackles her, 500-pound beast, just takes her out from the side, lands on her, and starts getting to work. Now, he does, she does live. I think she only broke a handful of ribs. But what struck me was, was a couple of things. First, the lion had been trying to attack her multiple times before he actually succeeded. You can see it in the video. He tries to go for her, and the, the trainers come in and, like, kick the head of the lion and, like, get it out of the way. But it had been going for her and just happened to succeed on the last time. But what was more interesting, or I guess more frightening to me, and it wasn't just in this video, it was in like all the videos I ended up tracking down. The trainer of the beast, the animal, says something every time, something like this. I'm just really surprised by this. I cannot believe Hercules or Thor would attack this innocent woman. This apex predator who exists for one purpose, to kill things, surprised you by attacking a piece of meat that you had snuggle it, you're surprised. And the trainer, especially, it was, it was wild to me, raising this lion, sitting with it, talking baby talk to the lion, ooey gooey, they were combing its mane and walking the lion, living, you could say, dangerously close to a massive beast that can kill you or at the very least, do tremendous harm. And I can't help but wonder, as we're picking on these trainers, if it's not you and me. It's certainly the case in the book of Judges, where Israel reminds me of that way of being, that is, living dangerously close to that which only does great harm. The people of Israel, in the book of Judges, and maybe you and I today, can try to train or domesticate, talk baby talk, befriend idolatry and sin, which exists for one purpose, to kill you and to kill me. They didn't destroy the altars. The people of Israel, in the story of Judges, have now entered into the promised land. The conquest was last week where we looked at the book of Joshua. Uh, Roger preached that sermon, and specifically using heightened language, warlike language, for the people of Israel to drive out the peoples that were there and to destroy their altars, to completely wipe out their idols and their metal and carved images. And over and over and over again, in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 1 especially, we hear this refrain, the tribe of Judah was supposed to drive out these peoples, but they didn't entirely do it. They left the altars. They left this. The people of Levi or the people of Naphtali. And over and over again, it goes through the tribes, and all of them had failed to obey the Lord by driving out the people and completely and utterly wiping out their foreign gods, the false deities, the idols of the land. And sure enough, what happens? They let this apex predator remain dangerously close to them. 
And these idols, these foreign gods, lead the people of God away from the one true God and do damage over and over and over again. This is the book of Judges. You see there in the the bright red print in your, your insert, what I want to do this morning with you, because I am preaching Judges chapter 2, but this is almost just a launching pad for me to cover the entire book of Judges. An interesting book, uh, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, actually, as will become increasingly clear throughout the morning. But the book of Judges does at least three things. Um, There's more, obviously, but I just had to pick three. The first thing is that it serves as an apologetic for Israel's monarchy. More on that in a second. Secondly, and where I hope to encourage us, is that the book of Judges encourages us with God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. It is one story of God remaining faithful even when His people are unfaithful. And last but not least, the book of Judges is one huge banner that warns us against the danger of idolatry, of having and entertaining false gods, counterfeit deities. So as I mentioned, the the context here is that the people of Israel, God's covenant people, have now entered the land for our purposes. You can just imagine, kind of like the modern day Israel, the Holy Land there. Um, and they have failed to obey the Lord entirely by getting rid of the false gods and the foreign deities that are in the land. They don't totally drive out the bad guys and the bad girls. Now, what is a judge, right? So this is the book of Judges, and if you're like me in the 21st century, you have an idea of what a judge is. You're thinking of legal sphere, arbitrating between disputes, and that is part of it. We see that most clearly in Judges. We're we're told that uh, uh, the judge Deborah, sorry, not Judges, but in Deborah, she is said to be doing exactly this, arbitrating between disputes, and that is a part of what it meant to be a judge, but that was secondary. Primarily, A judge is a savior, a deliverer. It's a, the vast majority of them are military men the Lord raises up to fight against evil and wickedness. That's what a judge is, a savior, deliverer. The judges in the book of Judges include, you might be familiar with these if you've done any reading or spending time in the judges, Ehud, my favorite. The left-handed guy with the dagger, he surprises King Eglon, the fat king, as he stabs him in the belly and the sword goes all the way into the belly and yes, entrails come out. My kids are like peeking up over there because I do a dramatic reenactment of the Ehud story with them at home. It's it's a lot of fun. They enjoy the story. Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. There's a number of less known judges. Othniel, who is Caleb's younger brother. Shamgar, I like him because he gets one sentence. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and just moves on. These are the judges. There's um, a number of them. It's, it's an interesting story. But the book of Judges is dark. And so as we're working through this, I have three basically up high statements that I want to make about the book of Judges. As we're studying God's unfolding grace in the Old Testament story, what should we know about Judges? I have three big things and then a handful, I think five, if time will permit, of application. Judges for you. What does this have to do with us? So the first thing I want us to see in terms of judges as a whole, I mentioned this already, the whole point of judges is to be an apologetic, an argument for, not an apology, an apologetic for a righteous king, an apologetic for Israel's monarchy. A refrain throughout the book, you saw it 
as Teresa was reading, look back at verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baal was just a Canaanite deity, thought to be the strongest, baddest of the bad. In verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord. Over and over again, we read this, and specifically, the refrain changes to this statement. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Right in their own eyes. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, over and over again. But the book of Judges serves as an argument that Israel needs a godly king who would do what was right in the Lord's eyes, who would be after God's own heart. Now, I want to pause here just for a brief moment because maybe you grew up in a tradition, and I'm not even sure where this came from. I've been trying to track it down. This idea that Israel was never supposed to have a king. Have you heard that? Israel was supposed to have God as a king, and uh, it was sinful for them to ask for a king. Have you heard that? Uh, That's what I I grew up hearing. The only problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 8 is where they ask for a king, and God seems to get a little upset with him, but the key is in that chapter where they say they want a king so that and because they want to be like the other nations. And sure enough, who's the king they pick? Tall, dark, and handsome. Saul. And he's not a good king. God had in mind a guy named David, short, not dark, and not handsome, maybe the youngest of the brothers. So this is easy to remember, Genesis 17, Deuteronomy 17, 17, 17. Genesis 17, God is uh, he's reminding Abraham of his covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, and he's giving him a covenant sign, the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, which changes to baptism in the New, and God is speaking to Abraham and says, Clear as day, from you, Abraham, I'm going to raise up kings to govern you. Okay, we're only 17 chapters into the book, and we're told that kings are going to come. Okay, so far so good, but Taylor, maybe that's not making your point super clearly. This one will. Deuteronomy 17. It's the last book of the law of Moses. And what is chapter 17? The latter half of Deuteronomy 17 is the Lord saying, when I give you the land... And raise up a king to be over you. Here's how he should live. We're not even out of Moses yet, and we're told a king was the point. A righteous king who would be a representative of the people. And you can see what's being set up. A little character, a character that would come later in the story of unfolding grace named Jesus. King Jesus. Messiah. Anointed one. And so that's what this is, this is doing, right? We, between Moses and then in King, uh, Samuel and Kings, where we have a monarchy set up, Judges sits as this little bridge and Ruth. Ruth is the time of the Judges. We have this little bridge where Judges serves as an argument for a righteous king that the people need because they can't do it themselves. Everyone did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes, right in their own eyes. So... That's what I wanted you to see first. That's what the point or purpose of Judges is. Uh, But the the other thing that I want us to see on a a high level over the book of Judges is that the book unfolds in what we might call cycles or patterns. It goes something like this. Well, the, the, the people drift away to other gods. They're led astray, whether it's Baal or Ashtaroth in our chapter later on where we meet other foreign gods and deities. 
They commit idolatry. They forget the Lord and say, we're going to worship this God. God gives them what they want. He says, fine. He gives them into the hands of those surrounding wicked people. They're oppressed, and it starts to go downhill. People that shouldn't even be there if they did and obeyed the Lord to begin with. The people seem, at least to some degree, to recognize their foolishness, to recognize their sin, and so they cry out to God. They weep. God graciously hears their prayers, raises up a judge to deliver them, proving that he himself remains faithful even when they are unfaithful. The judge, though deeply flawed and increasingly so throughout the book, as we'll see in a second, is assisted by God's spirit to save the people. So far, so good. We have temporary peace. The judge saves them. He is the deliverer, a savior. But the judge dies. And the people fall away, and it happens again. It just repeats. Same cycle. They wander after foreign gods again. We have this repeated statement throughout Judges of Israel's sin of idolatry, of abandoning the one true God. Okay, so that's the purpose of the book. That's the, the cycles that take place throughout the book. Third and finally, what I want you to see of this overarching story of Judges is that the Judges aren't heroes. So this is big. This might be new to you, actually. The judges are not heroes. They stink over and over again. They're awful, with the exception of some of the early ones, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. As we go, they just get worse and worse. Some of them commit some really grievous sin. Gideon is an embarrassment. He's not a man of faith. The fleece story of him laying out the, the, the fleece and then trying it again, you know the story? Is because he won't take God at his word. It's an entire story about how faithless he is. And we meet this guy, Samson, one of the worst of the worst. keeps getting led astray by a foreign wife that he took and married, which maybe I get it the first time. But then after the second, third, fourth time, when Philistines start breaking into my house to kill me, I think I'm going to pick up on something. Jephthah. You know the story of Jephthah, a judge. After great military conquest, the Lord raises him up and he delivers the people just to return home. And for some reason, say the first thing that walks out of my house, I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. And it's his daughter. These are flawed, messed up characters. And the judges seem to actually perpetuate the badness. Look at verse 19 of our passage. Whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And so if you were to sit down and read from cover to cover, Judges 1 through 21, you see it getting worse and worse. This downward spiral, this pattern of sin developing and getting worse as we go. That is Judges. That's the, the big overarching story of Judges. It's an apologetic that they need a righteous king. Built on cycles or patterns of sin, and it's filled with non heroes, messed up sinners. Now, I have a handful, five to be exact, but I can cut one on the fly if we run out of time, of what we might call judges for you. What's the point of all this then? What are we supposed to glean? Because so far, so bad, right? So far, this has been pretty depressing. I'm not really sure what to do with any of this. First, the cycles or patterns of sin in the book of Judges is not unique to the Judges. 
The book's about you and me. My community group, some of them are in this room right now, actually kind of had this pattern, this, this epiphany, if you will, while we were at community group. We were riffing and, 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 and kind of you know, picking on the judges, as I have been this morning. But then very quickly, I saw the light bulb start to go off in some of my community group members. They're like, wait a second. This isn't about the judges. This is, this is me. We're here gathered to sing God's praises and hear the word of God preached, to be reminded of the gospel. And by lunch today, you forgot that you're a Christian. And you wake up tomorrow completely like, who am I? What am I? Let me just spend the rest of this week identifying as all kinds of other things other than what I am, a son or daughter of the king. We, like the judges, we, like Israel, in the book of Judges, are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, there's one main difference, probably, and that is that you and I are not being led astray or tempted to bow down to metal or wooden images, actual idols. Maybe you are, um, maybe not. But the temptation of idolatry is no less real for us, even though we're not being tempted by foreign temples and altars. We're tempted by idols of the heart. Money. Sex or lust, our power. Control. When I feel deep in my bones, not only do my kids have to obey me, they have to do it the way I want them to. Security, safety, comfort, swelling bank account. Tim Keller has a book, a little book, found it at Half Price Books for a dollar this week, Counterfeit gods, where that's the, the book is arguing for, for this, and he's calling these idols, these ones and the hundreds of more that I haven't mentioned, counterfeit gods. They're fake gods. They're promising to be good to you, just to leave you empty. And the tricky part is that anything can become an idol in our lives. Sure, the, 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 the sinful stuff over here can become an idol in our heart, but even the neutral things or good things in our lives can become ultimate things and therefore be an idol and lead us astray, and lead us away to abandon the Lord. Our health can become an idol. Television, movies, kids, your job or career, what I call the, the endless next thing. You know people like this. Maybe it is you. You've always got something next. And you're saying it's because God's gifted you with ambition, but it's just you're not content. Good things like food and drink that the Lord has given to us. And he said, this, this, is, this is a good thing to enjoy and, to, and to, to be a tool through which we worship the Lord. But then we make them ultimate things. We overeat it and we overdrink it. Anxiety. It's just like my opening illustration. These things were, were just in many ways like the trainer. Keeping a, a pet lion really nearby, really close, just thinking we can train it. I've got it under control. I can walk it, live, live close to it. I'm struck by the amount of men and in our day and age, increasing number of women addicted to pornography. I got it under control. I got this. 
Well, what are you doing to, to sever off the supply chain? Oh, I don't know. All my devices are open and not protected in any way, and I can access it like this. It's, it's a lion that you are combing its mane. I got this. I can do it. Or whatever else is your thing. The problem is Genesis 4, verse 7. I love this verse because it's speaking of sin, and it does so uh, with lion-like language, if you will. Genesis 4, verse 7 says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Resist it. And I think that's why, why the Bible speaks about our temptation to idolatry, our wrestling against sin with such fierce language. Listen to some of these. Rule over it, as I just read. Kill it. The old languages, uh, translations, mortify your sin. Flee from it. Don't, don't be these silly trainers that are keeping an apex predator right next to you, thinking that you can control it when its bread purpose is to do you harm. Don't be friendly. Don't keep it close by like Israel did with the, the idols of old. That's, the, that's just the first part of the cycle. How, how else does the book of Judges, how is it supposed to encourage us? Well, secondly, that renewal is offered to those who repent. This is what we're supposed to glean from the book. Not only is it about you, because you, like me, live our life in patterns of being led away and coming back. Led away, come back. We are supposed to glean and, and know that God is offering out to us a welcome for those who return. I know you're going to be led astray. Whatever your idol is, whatever your sin pattern is, God's gracious welcome is here. Jesus, who tells us he is gentle and lowly, he's accessible. Name it. Confess it. As Roger said in our confession of sin, it's a grace. It's a gift. Name it. Confess and come back to the Lord. Whether it's one of the idols that I've been talking about or a sin with which you have lost a recent battle this week, and maybe it's for the hundredth time, it got you. Or maybe it's just your apathetic and cool attitude towards Jesus. The invitation stands. Come to the Lord. Come to the one who is gentle and lowly, whose heart is moved to pity and compassion for you, and be restored. It's the first two. Number three, I think the book of Judges teaches super clearly that avoiding or resisting, or you pick the word, avoiding, resisting sin is still most preferred. I don't mean to take away from what I've just said, that we are going to drift. We are going to struggle. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up with amnesia and forget who you are in Christ. Yes. And yes, it is true that there is renewal and restoration offered to us who repent and to come to Jesus. But don't let that overshadow the reality. It's still better to not sin than to do it and receive grace. So I just want to quote an old dead guy, Thomas Brooks. I've quoted him a couple of times. He's a Puritan. He wrote a little piece I've been working through called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in that book, he's talking about exactly what I'm talking about, that we will fall short. We will sin. And when we do, God is gracious to forgive all who turn and repent and come back to Jesus. But he still says, quote, yet it is better to be kept from sin then healed of sin by repentance, just as it is better for a man to be preserved from a disease than to be cured of the disease. Speaking from experience here, in 2018, I fell ill with a disease 
called myopericarditis. I was a heart failure patient for multiple years, fighting for my life to come back so my heart would work again. It would have been better for my heart to keep working than for it to nearly kill me and then get better over time. And I know I'm not alone in this room speaking of people who know what I'm talking about. And to to speak of this and to, to take it to sin, if you will, it's better for us to be kept from sin than cured of it through repentance. So let's keep that in mind. Let's remind ourselves of the fierce language with which Scripture talks about sin. Fight it and flee it. Maybe we ought to ask ourselves some heart questions. Heart. What does my mind tend to drift toward when I'm spacing out or laying in bed? What am I spending a lot of disposable income on? What do I tend to envy in those around me? If I only had, I would be happy. If I only had, I would be content. Those are idle questions, revealing just how much our hearts are idle factories, making and pumping out idols. Even my righteousness and goodness and godliness can be an idol in which I'm putting my trust in that. It's crazy. That is our story. Dane Ortland, in his book Deeper, talks about idols quite a bit. Specifically, he calls them pseudo-justification. He's getting at what Tim Keller was getting at when he called idols counterfeit gods. Biblical justification, you're probably familiar with it. Biblical justification is just the the beautiful truth that God declares sinners righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done. If you're in Christ by faith, your verdict is not guilty and it always will be because God has declared you righteous. That is justification and that is where we ought to get our identity. We're Jesus people, sons or daughters of the King, forgiven, free, and restored in Christ. The problem with idols is that they're just trying to tell us we're something else. And we're being satisfied with those somethings else. Ortland writes, idolatry is pseudo-justification because it is asking a created thing rather than the creator to render a verdict over me. We're wanting to be something else. Renewal, restoration is offered to us in the gospel, brothers and sisters, but it's still better to fight and flee from it to begin with. Don't seek to be clothed by whatever your idol is or to be identified as this or that because what's so silly is the gospel tells us we're already clothed. We already have Jesus. We already have everything we should want. Why are we so busy filling our lives with other things and trying to have those be who we are, those be how we identify ourselves? So, Two left, really, really briefly. The, the fourth judges for you application is that God is faithful even when we're not. That's the big piece of judges. Over and over again, right? You hear this refrain, that God raised up a judge. He heard their cry, raised up a judge, delivered them. Why? Why did God do that? He's nice, he's gracious, okay, maybe. There's a deeper reason. A covenantal reason. Why does God time and time again save his people from their distress? Answer, because he's committed to them. He is in covenant with them. He told Abraham of old, long ago, that I will be your God, you will be my people. Even when you're faithless, I will be faithful. 
I'm going to hold up my end. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be true, even when you're not. That's even better for us now today, brothers and sisters, on this side of the cross, this side of the gospel, because God has told us, he's looking us in the eye right now, saying that all those who are trusting in Jesus are secure in him. I will not lose a single one of you. I have pledged myself to you. You are mine. Your foundation is rock solid. All who come to me, I will not lose a single one. No one can snatch you out of the hand of God. He is faithful even when we break the promises. He doesn't. You can hold on to that. You can see it in the book of Judges. It's even more true for us than it was for for them. And last, finally, as we go to the table here in conclusion, I'm reminded that the book of Judges reminds us that the good news of Jesus Christ is what makes us worthy. As I've said and made very clear, I hope, the judges are not worthy. The judges are not men, women of faith. They're examples of sin and the patterns that we know all too well. But I do find something unique. Where are some of these judges found elsewhere in the Bible? Do you know? Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith. Gideon is found there. One I just made fun of. Samson, silly Samson. He's in there. Jephthah is. The daughter sacrificer. Barak. Those are four judges in the book of Hebrews. Because they, although super imperfect, were entrusting themselves to God and His revealed word. And because of that, God counted them righteous. And the same is true of us. Maybe we're currently somewhere in that cycle or pattern of sin like the judges. It's not because of you that you are counted righteous, but because of the Lord. Because of Jesus on your behalf. We too can be counted righteous. As flawed as we are. And you know your heart. I know mine. Just like in the book of Judges, God raised up a judge to deliver his people. So we now in the New Testament age, believers, know of the one judge that God has raised up. Jesus Christ and him crucified to deliver and save us. Just like in the book of Judges, the Lord is moved to pity when he hears the cries of his people. So God, too, is moved to compassion when he sees us continuing to be plagued with sin and brokenness and death. And his very heart is moved toward you and toward me. Just like in the book of Judges, when the Lord heard the cry of the people of Israel, so he hears you when you cry, when you request, when you intercede. We have a good God who says all the promises find their yes in Jesus. So we, as we're preparing to go to the table, can know firmly and surely that God has provided salvation. He has provided life, joy, and abundant joy for us in Jesus, who is the ultimate, the complete judge, the ultimate, the complete king, the ultimate, the complete deliverer and savior. Your happiness is not going to be found in any of those idols, whatever yours are. But they're offered to us in King Jesus, who says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Your idols won't. And that's what we do in every week in going to the table. It's a time for us to cast off those things that have caused us to be 
heavy laden and, and weary, probably even some of our idols that are exhausting us, to cast them aside, to flee from them, to, to kill them, the apex predators that they are, and to come to the table and receive restoration and joy and satisfaction and forgiveness. Because the bread and the wine which we are about to partake are not just bread and wine. They point to the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ where life and life abundant is held out to you and held out to me. So whatever you've been wrestling with, whether you've fallen short to an idol, come and be restored. This is a table for Christians, for those who are resting in Jesus alone for salvation. Wherever you find yourself at on the cycle of judges or the pattern of judges, if you are resting in Jesus, this is for you. It's not a table if you are not a Christian, not claiming to be a Christian, or if you're harboring a secret, an unrepentant sin, I would encourage you just to, to hold off. Or if you're also at odds with another Christian, you've not gone out of your way to make restoration, then the scriptures would say, hold off. There's a number of prayers in our worship booklet for you to pray as we go. But it's not uncommon for people not to to come to the table. But if you are in Christ by faith, trusting in him, as imperfect as you are, come to the table and be restored and refreshed. Let me pray for us. And as I do, I'd like to have an elder or two at each table. We'll come from the outside of the room to receive our elements and then return to the table and we'll partake together. Let me pray. God, you are good, you are gracious to us, I pray that you would help us know afresh the gospel, that you would remind us of your goodness and grace for us in you, Jesus. Help us come to you with faith, as imperfect as we are, and be strengthened and nourished afresh. In Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name, amen. When you're prepared, I invite you to come to the table, receive your elements, and then return to your seats.